Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to take your Bible in hand now and open to Ephesians chapter 2. We're studying verse by verse and have been since... uh, the first week of January, and we'll, Lord willing, complete chapter two today. So obviously we are taking our time. Now you remember that last week, we looked at the power of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now of course, it's powerful enough to forgive sins, right? That's what we celebrate when we come together every Sunday is our salvation, made possible by the atoning work, the sacrificial death, and the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have been reconciled, the scripture says, with a holy God. We were at odds, the scripture uses the term enmity with God because of our sinfulness. God is holy and he cannot uh, dwell among sinful people and so our sin problem had to be dealt with and it was through the blood of Jesus and through the cross. But as we saw last week, not only does the cross allow reconciliation this way, vertically, between God and man, it makes possible reconciliation horizontally, that is between men who are at odds, specifically between races and nations who are at odds. And Paul uses the example of Jews and Gentiles. He says of the Gentiles that you who were far away that is far away from the covenants and the promises, those who did not know about the Old Testament law, those who had never heard the name of Jehovah, and those who are near, those who knew about the Messiah, who had the Old Testament, but they were in the same predicament in that neither of those had bowed their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But through the cross, Jesus makes it possible for those groups to be reconciled. What a glorious truth is the power of the cross, but also what uh, wonderful irony, as we've said. The fact that the cross was an instrument used to take away life, God used to give life. The cross was an instrument to separate family member from family member. God used to bring together in one new family, the body called the church. It reminds us of what Joseph said to his brothers up there in Egypt when he said of their selling him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Man meant the death of Jesus for evil, but God has used it for our good and his great glory. Now we take a step farther here in chapter two, as Paul describes the power of the cross to bring about this kind of radical change. In in doing so, Paul uses three images, or we could call them metaphors, to describe these changes and see if you can point them out as I read our text this morning, beginning in verse 13, I'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading hearing of his word. Did you catch the three metaphors? Paul says that in Christ all Christians, first of all, are citizens of the same kingdom. Secondly, he says, all Christians are members of the same family. And finally, he says, all Christians make up the same household, the temple of God. And I find it interesting that he would use those three metaphors because last week we were talking about all of the disunity and the chaos that we find in our culture today. And almost all of that disunity and chaos centers around these three kinds of relationships, relationships in politics, in family life, and in religion. And Paul addresses all three that we have become something totally new through the cross. Now our outline today gives us four points. Number one, first of all, it tells us that we now have available access to God. Secondly, ours are blessed benefits. Thirdly, there's a firm foundation upon which God is doing something. And fourthly, he gives away that precious purpose. So let's look at verse 18. And the title of the message today is God's dwelling place. And you'll see why in just a moment. First of all, available access. Verse 18, he says, for through him, that is Jesus, we both, that is the Jew and the Gentile alike, have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so he's saying there are some things that are common to all races and all kinds of people that there's only one way to salvation. Now, does that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 14 of himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say there's a Gentile way or there's a Jewish way. He says there's one way. And both of those groups are drawn to God the Father by the same Spirit. This is what amazed the Apostle Peter, remember, at the Council of Jerusalem. He said, we bear witness to the fact that these people responded to the same gospel, that is the Gentiles that we did, and they were given the same Holy Spirit that we, the Jews, were. And so he speaks now of our access to God. Now, it's a frustrating thing not to be able to access things that you need. Recently, our computer man here at the church, Greg Rice, informed all the pastors that it was time that we all changed our passwords for security's sake. And I said, well, I just changed mine in 1999. What's the big deal? <laughs> and you know how we get to, to using things over and over and just become second nature. And so he told us to come up with a difficult password, uh, one that only we would recognize its meaning. And so I did and promptly forgot it. And so every day I have to really think hard about what my password is because if you don't type it in correctly, a message on your screen will say, access denied. That's frustrating, right? You have all this material you need to get to, but uh, it, it's not accessible to you. Well, the scripture says because of our sinfulness, we did not have access to God. Now, there was a time in which uh, human beings did have direct access to God. That is in the Garden of Eden. Remember that Adam and Eve were living there in this perfect garden, this perfect atmosphere that God had created for his highest creation. And the Lord would come in some visible manifestation and fellowship with them in the cool of the morning. And yet when they sinned, they were cast out of the garden. This separation came up between 
man and God. We see that in the construction of the temple, don't we? That in the temple there was an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies that was separated from the rest of the temple by a dark and a thick curtain. And only the high priest could go there and only once a year. It was showing that God was separated from people because of sin. But when Jesus died on the cross, remember that veil, that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. Signifying the fact that now man can once again have access to the Father. And this is what he says here in verse 18. For through Jesus we both have our access. That is we can get to God in fact, this word here, translated in the English as access, is a Greek word, pasagoge, which is a noun, which is a title of someone who is an emissary to a king. Now, you can imagine that in olden times, if you had a message for the king and you didn't know the king, you didn't just walk up to him and give him the message. You had to go through emissaries. You had to go through people who had a relationship with the king. And the scripture says this is what Jesus did for us. And because Paul has said many times in Ephesians that now that we've put our place, faith in Jesus, we can be said to be what? In Christ. Because we are in Christ, we as believers have access to God through Jesus. He is our emissary, the scripture says, because Jesus is righteous and acceptable to God the Father and we are in Christ, our sins are forgiven by his blood, now we have access to God through that one spirit. So that's a wonderful truth. The powerful cross gives us access to the Father. Secondly, it gives us some other blessed benefits. Look at verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now he's speaking directly, I take it, to the Gentile believers in the churches in Ephesus. Almost all of them were Gentiles. He says, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, meaning at one time you were. Of course, that's true. Look back at verse 12 where Paul describes the state of Gentiles before conversion. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope without God in the world. Now he comes back to that point, he says you were strangers and aliens. Now when you're a stranger and alien, it means you don't belong somewhere. You don't have the rights of a citizen. Remember when we were studying 1 Peter, we. Remember that 1 Peter says that we as Christians are not citizens of this world. We're strangers, we're aliens, we're passing through. And I said at that time, the reason that you and I often feel out of place in this culture, in this world, in this system, in the philosophies is that we are out of place because this is not our home. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, right? We're homesick for a place we've never been before, as the song goes. But Paul says here that in Christ we are fellow citizens with the saints, that is with all believers. A citizen is someone who has rights and privileges. Remember that the Apostle Paul was a citizen of the Roman Empire. That gave him certain rights and privileges that others weren't afforded, including the right to appeal his case all the way to Rome, to Caesar, and he did just that, of course. And then he says also we are members of God's household. Now, what he's doing here, he's showing how Christ has broken down the barriers that tend to separate humanity. What are some of the ways in which we divide up and we segregate ourselves? Well, it's based on nation of origin, right? You have Americans, you have uh, the French, you have Australians, you have 
Sudanese, on and on we could go as we saw last week. But in Christ, those barriers have been broken down. In the church, we all have access to Christ and we are fellow citizens no matter our nation of origin, that is our political geo nation of origin, we are citizens of God's kingdom. But then he takes it a step farther and he says this, you are members of God's household. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Then he takes it a step even farther. Here he's calling us sons and daughters. To be a member of God's household means to be adopted into his family. We could go back to chapter one here in Ephesians, and that's the exact terminology he uses, that we were predestined to be adopted by God. And so God the Father, this God who we were separated from by our sins, at one time we were hopeless and helpless, we were far away from him. Through the wonderful cross we have been brought near, we have been granted heavenly citizenship. Not only that, we can now rightly say that we are sons and daughters of God. Thirdly, he establishes us on a firm foundation. Look at verse 20. He's speaking of this household that God is putting together. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, oftentimes, my family will ask me, where are you going? And I'm grab my keys and go out the door. I say, I'm going to church. You've used that same terminology. They know what I mean. They mean I'm heading up to 225 Keller Parkway where this facility exists. But you and I also know that almost always in the New Testament where the word church is used, it has nothing to do with an address, has nothing to do with a building, has everything to do with the people of God. The church are God's people brought together in, in a local geographic setting. We are the First Baptist Church of Keller, but we would be the First Baptist Church of Keller if we didn't have a building, right? But here in this case, Paul kind of flips the script. He's using the image of a building to describe what God's doing in building the people of God. And he says he's doing so with a firm foundation. Now, if you know anything about construction, you know how essential and important getting the foundation is. We live in a particular part of Texas that is uh, infamous for its foundation problems. And so there has to be all kinds of testing done and still some of us will have foundation problems. But you need to address that immediately because if your foundation doesn't last, your house is not going to last, right? Jesus told that parable about two men who went out to build a house and one built his house upon the rock. That is a firm foundation. The other built his on the sand, which is a movable foundation. The rains came, the floods came. What happened? The one that built his house on the rock stood the test of time. The one who built his house on the shifting sands lost everything. The point, of course, is not architecture or construction codes. That's not the point Jesus was making. He was speaking of himself, that the person, the church, that builds themselves upon the strong foundation of the gospel and on Jesus himself will stand the test of time. Whatever is built on the shifting sands of the philosophies of this age will ultimately come to nothing. Well, this is what Paul is saying as well and what he says, of course, in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11 when he speaks of us building up this household. So, we are... Fellow citizens of the kingdom, we are members of the household 
of God in which God is the master architect. He says the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Now don't let that throw you for a loop. He's not elevating the apostles and prophets to a level of super saintdom. Notice what he says back in verse 19. He says, we are fellow citizens with the saints. In the church, there's not classification and strata of Christians. They're all the saints. All of us are the saints, the called out, the set aside ones of God. What he's saying is that the church is built upon the revelation of Jesus Christ that came through the apostles and the prophets. Think back to the apostle Peter and the Lord Jesus and the other disciples were having a conversation one day and lots of rumors were swirling about as to who Jesus really was. And so Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do men say that I am? And they began to list some of the rumors that were going around. Well, some saying you're this prophet, some saying you're Elijah, this one or that. And so Jesus says, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? The Apostle Peter, being the spokesman for the twelve, spoke up and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he declared that upon this rock I will build my church. Now some have taken that to mean that Peter is the one that has the keys to the kingdom and he stands at the gate and determines who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Aren't you glad that's not true? What he was saying is that this confession that Peter made as Jesus is Lord is the foundation upon which he's going to build his church. And so Paul goes on here in Ephesians 2, he says, the foundation is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, but Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Now we don't build buildings in Keller, Texas this way anymore. But in ancient days, the primary mode of construction was by stonework. And so they'd go out to the quarry, and after all, stone was the most readily available raw material. And the engineers and the architects would um, mark out those rocks that would be best suited for different places in the building. But the most important one was called the cornerstone. And it was the stone upon which all the weight of the building was going to come to rest. But more importantly, it was going to be the stone of which the rest of the building was plumbed and made to be square. That is perfect in every angle, in every direction. So if your cornerstone was off, guess what? The rest of your building was going to be off as well. That's why God has built his building, his temple, his church upon the cornerstone who is perfect. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter uses this same imagery in 1 Peter. If you want to turn there with me quickly, you recall that some uh, months ago we studied through 1 Peter. And in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Peter uses almost identical language as the Apostle Paul in describing what God is doing in building the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says this, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is cho choice and precious in the sight of God. Who is this precious stone that's been rejected of men? Well, it's none other than Jesus. Remember John said he came into his own and his own did not receive him. These religious leaders of Jesus' day that should have recognized the Messiah look to Jesus, this stone, and they say, unworthy. That one can't be 
the cornerstone. That one's not worthy to be the Messiah. And so the Bible says that Jesus became a stumbling stone for them. They could not get past it. They just kept tripping over this idea that they had to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. But he says, God has taken that stone that they have rejected and made him precious in his sight. Verse five, you also, because we are in Christ, in other words, we share some characteristics with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now he's using the image of the building of the temple. You remember in the Old Testament, the book of 1 Kings, who was the king that wanted to build a house for the Lord? Well, it was King David. Remember, King David was not allowed to build a house to the Lord, and so that wonderful duty and privilege fell to David's son, Solomon. And Solomon began to put together all of those uh, construction workers and experts in various fields, and he bought the, the most precious building materials, the cedars of Lebanon. He brought in goldsmiths and silversmiths and uh, all kinds of workers, and, and the building was built, and it must have been magnificent. I say it must have been because it doesn't exist today, right? In fact, uh, it, it was... Uh, a rare and marvelous work, and people came from all over the world, we were told, to see it. But when Solomon dedicated the temple, remember what he said? We know that God cannot be contained in this building, right? And yet, God is wanting to live and dwell among his people, and he does so as he's putting together the church. And Peter says that every individual Christian is a stone in that building. Christ is the cornerstone, but every individual Christian is a living stone. Now mark that. A stone, a rock, or a boulder is rarely given the, the uh, attachment living. In fact, just the opposite. In our English language, we use the word rock to describe something that's dead. He's dead as a rock, we would say, right? But Peter says we are living stones. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he urges us by the mercies of God to present ourselves as holy and what kind of sacrifices? Living sacrifices. A sacrifice like a stone by its nature is dead, but God doesn't want us to die for our sins. Jesus has already done that. Now that Jesus has died for our sins, he wants us to live for him. And he wants us to be living stones in this wonderful household that he is creating. And so you see what he's doing? He's showing the commonality. He's showing the unity of purpose that was brought about through the cross. It brought reconciliation vertically between sinners and a holy God. And now it's bringing about reconciliation and peace horizontally between warring factions, individuals and races of people. Because we have one spirit, he says, and we are sharing the same access, Jesus Christ to God the Father, and we are being built up together in the same household as fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Now go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Fourthly and finally, he gives away this purpose. Why is he doing all of this? Verses 21 and 22, he says, speaking of Jesus, in whom the whole building, that is the church, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. 
that speaks of an ongoing process. Now here we are in the year 2016. So for 2,000 years, the church has been established and is growing. He's using the imagery of construction. Now if you've ever traveled in Western Europe, you know that uh, there you will find some amazing Gothic architecture. Many of these grand cathedrals that were built hundreds of years ago for the purpose of worship took hundreds of years to build. Now think for a moment what that means. The person who drew up the blueprints and the person who laid the cornerstone and the person who laid the foundation knew on day one of construction they would never live to see its completion. Their children and possibly their grandchildren might be there when that building was finally dedicated to the Lord, but they knew for certain they would not be. Well, in a similar way, every generation of Christians is tasked with reaching their generation with the gospel. And we are building one level at a time, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, generation after generation. But here's a strange truth. Not one of those individuals who is part of that construction process had any idea when it would be completed. <laughs> Many of them held out hope that in their lifetime, the Lord Jesus would come and thereby showing that the construction is complete. Guess what? Here we are today. It's our turn. The baton has been passed to us. It's our task to reach our generation with the gospel and to continue to build stone by stone, person by person, generation by generation upon what has been built before. I use the example of this building in the first service. This building we're in now was built in 1985. It was not the original building. That building has been torn down. It was built in the 1960s, but that was not the original building. The original building of First Baptist Church of Keller was down on the corner of 377 and 1709. It's been gone for many years. But when the property was bought here in the late 50s and construction began in the early 60s. Building after building has been added, year after year. 1985, this building, the 1990s, the gymnasium and some education space. 2001, another educational wing. 2008, this third story building you see over here. The point is this, we continue to add as the need arises. Here is the point that he's making. He's not talking about buildings. He's talking about people. He's talking about the church. It's that God keeps bringing in more people year after year from every tribe and tongue and nation. And what he's building, though, has unity. Unity of purpose, that is to bring glory to him, and unity of aesthetics. I, I said last week, one of the reasons that the Lord is bringing people from all over the world to First Baptist Keller is that's what heaven's going to look like, right? And heaven's going to be beautiful. And it's going to be this beautiful aesthetic, this tapestry of people from all over the world. And God is doing this as a dwelling place for himself. Look at verse 22. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We see all three members of the Trinity on display here in these four verses. We see God the Father, whose plan it was before the foundation of the earth to bring this about. We see the person of Jesus Christ, the means by which the plan was brought about through his death, burial, and resurrection. And we see the Holy Spirit drawing all these people together for the glory of God. And I don't know about you, I'm excited 
to be a part of the dwelling place of God. If there's a person here today who's on the outside looking in, meaning you don't know Jesus as Lord, you've never bowed your knee to him, you've never repented of sins and received his free gift of salvation. It's my important duty to tell you today on the day of judgment, you're going to hear these words, access denied. You will forever be on the outside looking in unless you do bow your knee repent of sins and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. That is the only way that any person has access to God is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when you do bow your knee to his Lordship, when you do receive his free gift of salvation, there are some wonderful blessings that accrue to you. You become a fellow citizen along with all these believers here and with every other believer from all time With every saint, you become a fellow citizen of God's kingdom. You also are adopted into God's household. You no longer will be a stranger and alien. You'll be called a son and a daughter of God. And you will begin to be part of this wonderful dwelling place that's being built by God himself. That is built on the firm foundation of the gospel with Christ as the cornerstone. You'll have a meaning for life and that meaning is to be joined together as a living stone with other believers for the sake of bringing honor and glory to God. I call upon you to receive that gift today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this marvelous truth, speaking of the power of the cross and of the blood of the Lord Jesus. First of all, to reconcile sinners such as us to a holy God such as you. And then, Father, the ability to bring those warring parties and races together into something new, the body of Christ, the church, that you continue to build year after year, generation after generation. And, Father, now it's our turn, those of us living today who are members of his body, to continue, Lord, to bring him glory and to pass that baton of truth to the next generation. So, Father, we don't know where we are in that building process. We sense by the signs of the time we're nearing the end. But, Father, if uh, the second coming of Jesus is delayed before very long, everyone in this room will pass away from this earth. And, Lord, we pray that when that happens, we will have instilled these truths and passed them down to the next generation who will pass them down to the subsequent generation and on and on until Jesus does, in fact, return. Help us, Father, to be found good and faithful servants when Jesus does return. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.